Welcome to the Unstoppable Yes You podcast, where we celebrate the achievements of Caribbean people to inspire the next generation. I'm your host, Curlis Philip, bringing you a new series on Caribbean authors. In this series, I will introduce you to authors from across the Caribbean diaspora who are bringing our stories and culture to the forefront. They will share helpful tips for those of you that are interested in learning what it takes to become an author. And you may even find a title or two that pique your interest. Today, I am speaking with Sharma Taylor. Sharma is a lawyer by profession and a writer by passion. This celebrated author won the 2020 Frank Collimore Literary Endowment Prize and was also the winner of the 2019 Johnson and Amoy Achang Caribbean Writers Prize for Emerging Writers. Shama has also been shortlisted four times for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Today, we're going to talk about Shama's debut novel, What a Mother's Love Don't Teach You, which has been described as a powerful story of belonging, identity, and inheritance. Shama, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Curlis. And it's so wonderful to be here. Really, really appreciate you and this opportunity to share with other writers. You describe yourself on Twitter as a creative, quirky nerd who believes in the magic of words. Can you expand on that? <laughs> yes, I can. Um, the nerd part is quite easy. I'm a bookworm, uh, introvert. Um, you know, I was that kid in school who was a teacher's pet, little nerd, you know, kind of awkward. You know, if I'm walking with a glass of water, you can be sure it's going to drop at some point. Um, I love of knowledge. I really believe in educating myself. So I've studied up to the level of a PhD. And um, I think I'll be a lifelong learner, no matter how old I am. I'm always trying to find some course to learn something new, do something different. Um Quirky. I like the things that I like. So I may get a notion, okay, I want to learn steel pan today and I just jump into a steel pan class or I want to learn how to, you know, so any, any weird or different thing, I'm, I'm all for it to try. Um, that's just my personality. I'm naturally curious. So I think what flows out of that is, you know, varied interest in a whole range of things that um, I just love exploring and just finding out. And some of that then feeds into my writing. You know, once I've had a particular experience, try something new, it can expand the horizon for my characters in, in my writing. When did you discover writing was your calling? I think I always knew I wanted to be a writer, even as a child. And I grew up in Jamaica with a single mom and a brother who was six years older than me. So it wasn't a home with like lots of kids, lots of distractions, you know. I books became my friends, you know. I would escape into uh Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, uh Enid Blyton books, you name it. Anything I could get my hands on, I was all about reading. Um, to the point that there used to be a supermarket not far from our home and sometimes women would not take me with her because at the checkout counter they'd have a stand with children's books. And invariably, we'd get to the counter. And instead of asking for candy or something like that, I'd be like, Mommy, can I get this book? And she, being a teacher, didn't have the heart to tell me no. And so that meant, okay, we have to put back the rice or we have to put back the meat or we have to put back something to be able to get that book for me. 
So um, I, I always knew I wanted to produce for other people what I felt in terms of new worlds, new experiences. And, you know, I started writing when I was a kid. I remember I was like maybe nine or 10 and I wrote a romantic novel of some carriage going over a cliff in the 1800s. I don't know where I got that idea from. Um, but it was one of those things that I, I kind of always felt, always knew that someday this is something I would want to do with my life. And I went to a course, um, the late Wayne Brown, who is a Trinidadian poet and fiction writer and essays. At the time, he was living in Jamaica as the editor of the Jamaica Observer, one of our daily newspapers. And he advertised for uh, fiction workshops. And I think I was like maybe 16 at the time begged my mom to put the money together so I could go and she did and you know I remember through his coaching and his support you know him believing in me and at that point I won second place in the observers um, competition for fiction and he said to me Sharma you should be proud because you're up against you know adults and for you to come second you really should be proud but he also said to me Sharma you're a good writer now but you're not gonna be the best writer you can be until you you age someone, you grow up, you go through some experiences. And although he, he died, I still remember his words. You know, he's one of those people who became my mentors. And when I got older, um, in my early 30s, I revisited writing. Having stopped since starting law in my 20s, um, I just realized there was something missing from my life. And I looked at it and I said, oh, I've written, I've written, and I returned to it. And in the last, I would say, seven or eight years, I've returned to it. And I believe that, you know, it, it was just a coming full circle and fulfilling what I always knew to be a path that I was going to take. So, Shoma, you mentioned that you took a break from writing, and that was after you finished um, your law program at UE Cape Hill. So what prompted that break? All right, that's a good question. The break was prompted by law school. Because I had to read all these cases, I had to read all these law textbooks, and the kind of writing was essays and writing for exams and assignments. So it's really law that caused me to stop my creative writing. And obviously, when I finished law school, I went straight into working for a firm and then later other companies. And I think the law just consumed my life. So I really just devoted my writing and energies to writing legal opinions and court documents and you know it just gradually became one of those things that okay I, I know I, I should you know I should get back to it but it eventually got to the point where you know I felt something you know you feel that sadness when you just feel that hole and when I had that introspection I realized hey it really was years and years and years of not doing the thing that brings me the most joy. Yeah, I could definitely relate to what you're saying because uh, as you were talking, it made me reflect on graduate school and having to read all these textbooks. And I was in an um, executive MBA program, which was accelerated. And so in between semesters, which was literally one week break, I would go to a Baltimore public library and just read a fun book. I'm like, no textbook nothing heavy. I just want to read a casual book. Yes, reading without an agenda. Shama, how did your Caribbean upbringing influence the type of stories you wrote? 
I'm a proud Jamaican, but I have also lived for many years in Barbados. So I consider myself part Bayesian too. I also lived in New Zealand at one point. So I consider myself part Kiwi. Um, and I think, you know, both living here and also living overseas, it, it exposed me to different kinds of people, different kinds of personalities. Kind of opened up life, basically, you know, realizing that the way you may do it here in Jamaica is not necessarily the way something is done elsewhere. And there's more than one way to do something, more than one experience. You know, it, it, it made me more a bit more open-minded. And I think my writing centers a lot on Jamaican characters because that's what I know. That's who I see. Um, and I and I love voice. I'm I'm big into voice. Most of my writings, I'm speaking through a character with different um, dialect. As you know, in Jamaica, you have different ways of speaking depending on where you're from, your social background, and I love playing with voice, you know, and exploring that in my in my work. So that features heavily. Um, if I wasn't Jamaican, obviously Jamaican dialect wouldn't feature so strongly. But I figure wherever I am, um, just just hearing. Because sometimes I'm one of those people that I'm out in public and I'm just listening to people talk. I'm in the supermarket, I'm in a bank, I'm in wherever. I sit down and I listen to what people say and how they say it and in, mentally take some notes and, you know, crack up at the joke that they're making, not realizing that I'm hearing and all of that. And I think it goes back to that curiosity about people and about life and all of those influences would then find them their way into a story. And I know you started out um, writing short stories. So tell us about your early works and your publishing journey. Okay. Early works. I remember I was going to take it back to high school. I went to all girls high school in Jamaica called St. Andrew High School for Girls. And I remember one day Miss Bala gave us an assignment to write a short story. I don't remember what I wrote. I don't remember what the story is about, but I remember coming in class one day late. Um, I came in like maybe half an hour after the class had started, you know, and I remember everybody looking at me and I was like, gosh, I know I'm late, but I mean, I really didn't expect all these looks. And Miss Bala said, oh, you're right on time. I was just talking about your story. And then she proceeded to praise me in front of the whole class for that story. And the significance of that was, up until that point, I'd never really felt that I was pretty good at anything in school. You know, I went to a top high school. So where in primary school, I was bright. In high school, I was just average because there's so many brilliant girls there. I didn't stand out in anything except for the first time in writing in English. And and that kind of does spark this, this belief in me that, man, you mean I could be good at something? I could stand out in something? And it gave me that sense of validation. And I remember also reading a story from a mom. Uh, I'll never forget, we're at home and she's around the back room washing. And I'm like, mommy, listen to this story. I was about to arrest a man on a bus. And I don't remember what happened, but people were ostracizing him. And, you know, I read it. And she's like, you wrote that? You wrote that? And she couldn't believe it. As a, you know, as a teenager, I wrote that story. And that also kind of let me realize, hey, I have something here. So I felt, for me, short stories were an accessible form of writing. I would never have thought that I would have a novel inside of me until I wrote a novel. Because for me, in 3,000 to 5,000 words, I'm done. You know. Um, however, coming to the journey of how I became published, eight years ago, I moved to Barbados for a job. 
And while there, I reconnected with uh, Professor Jane Bryce, who taught at University of the West Indies, the Cable campus. I had met her about nearly over a decade before when I was an undergrad doing my law degree in Barbados um, for my second and third year. So law students are allowed to do another course from another faculty, and I chose her English class. Um, and I remembered her, and I reconnected with her when I moved back there. And she said, Charmaine, in the nick of time, I'm about to retire, but we have a course that's open to the public in creative writing. And I, at the time I moved, I missed the deadline, so I waited a whole year and then went in. And that course for me and the writers I met on that course was a game changer because even the story that was shortlisted for the very first time for the Commonwealth, which was in 2018, was a story, Sunsung's birthday, that started as a course assignment for Professor Bryce. So I sent in the story and she gave me an A in the course, but she's like, okay, Sharma, so what happens next? I said, what do you mean what happens next? She's like, okay, in the story, you've told us about some characters, you've introduced some people, so we need to see what happens after this first scene. And that is what sparked for me the desire to, okay, let me see how I can develop it. You know, and all this time, she also encouraged me to submit to journals. So I would submit to the Caribbean writer and was published, Hui, which is the Cave Hill Journal, and was published, um, submitted to, to various places. And in the meantime, I also submitted to the Bocas Lit Fest. They have a prize for emerging writers. At the time, it was called the Johnson and Amaya Chung Writers Prize. And they basically ask you to send in a first chapter and an outline for a novel. So at that point, with Professor Bryce's encouragement, I sent in this short story and an outline of how I think it would develop. And on the basis of that, I won the prize for fiction. And that gave me a mentor in the form of Kai Miller. That gave me a trip to the UK for an Arvon course. So Arvon is a UK uh, NGO that promotes writing and literature. So I spent a couple of weeks in Devon in a place called Tatley Barton with other writers writing and focusing on writing. And, you know, it, so I'm saying all this to say that I think for any writer, the journey is not just really you. It's not a solo journey. There are people who along the way help you to get there. And in my case, many, many people helped me to get there. So by the time I was finished with the novel, I had had all the support from you know, the, the writer friends that I'd made who gave me feedback, you know, writing groups I was a part of. Um, and so then I had something that I felt reasonably confident about when I started to submit to agents asking if they represent me. And I think through that, I got a publisher. And that's how the novel, What a Mother's Love Don't Teach You, published in July this year, um, came to be born. You mentioned that you had mentors along the way, you got additional training to help you hone your skills, and then you eventually landed a two-book deal with Virago. So tell us about that and how you landed that deal. Okay. So we have to back up a little to before I even queried my agent. There is a UK NGO called Black Girl Writers run by Abigail Jackson. I'd encourage every female writer to be part of that program. How it works is she pairs you with a mentor who you share your work with. And, you know, these are industry professionals. These are agents. These are publishers who give you feedback 
and basically advise you on your state of readiness to get your work out there. So I was paired with Emma Herdman, and when I shared my work with her, she's like, Sharma, you need to query. I said, really? I'm not sure if I'm there yet. I'm not sure if I'm ready. She said, yes. And she helped me to do my, what they call a query letter, which is basically writing to the agent to say why you think they should represent you. I sent it to maybe a seven or eight. Um, I didn't hear from about three. Um, well, no, three. One, I didn't hear from Christians away. And then two felt it wasn't right for them. But then the others offered me representation. And how I came to even get that list is, again, through Emma. She said, you know, Sharma, based on your personality, based on your work, based on agents I know, these are the agents I think could be a fit for you. So again, she helped me tremendously. So I knew exactly who to query. And once I picked my agents, you know, uh, the lovely Heli of um, Ogden of Janklin Nesbitt, I then, she gave me feedback on the work. She made some changes. And then she, because of her industry knowledge, would say, okay, Sharma, these are the publishers I think may be right for you. And so we submitted to publishers, um, again, like maybe five or six or so. So three of which were interested and I met with each of them. And again, based on her advice, based on my connection with my editor at Virago Rose and the shared vision we had for the story, I ended up going with her. And so that's how it happened. So it's really just through the suggestions of, again, a mentor um, that led me to my publishing um, deal. Can you tell us about what a mother's love don't teach you? Right. So that book, let's start at the beginning. So this book, which began as a short story, basically tells the story of a woman called Dinah. So it's set in 1980s Jamaica, deliberately um, in the aftermath of um, the, the, the turbulent 70s and the whole ideological battle between Castro's communism and the American capitalism and Jamaica sort of being caught in the middle. Um, it's, a, it's a story where Dinah, 18 years before, had given up her baby boy, who she named Sonson, to an American expat couple living in Jamaica. She was young, uh, unplanned pregnancy, um, and they were childless and wanted a baby. So she arranged to let them adopt um, on the understanding that they would still keep in touch. However, they moved away to America. She never heard from them, never saw her child. And 18 years after that, she's working with a different couple in Jamaica. And they have American friends who come down with their child, Apollo. And Dinah meets him. You know, So the opening chapter is that short story where she meets that boy and she's convinced that this boy is her long lost son. Um, and the rest of the novel explores how her belief sort of act as a match to the dynamite that then, you know, cause all of their lives to be changed um, as a result of that encounter and that their relationship. And he's also searching, you know, being a black man growing up largely in a very white privileged society as a stepfather is white and searching for who he is as a man who his own identity and the novel looks at his journey as well you know through through her love and through her support so shama was dinah inspired by a real person 
No, actually, how Dinah came to be, I was in my apartment in Barbados washing dishes, thinking about how am I going to write a story that is going to be the final piece for Professor Bryce's course? Like, I have no idea what I'm going to write. And then all of a sudden, I just hear this voice in my head saying, you know, she woke up one morning feeling like she's underwater, that's too green. And I just left the plates in the sink and just took out my pen and just started to write on paper, whatever the voice was saying. And I just wrote it all the way to the end. So for me, which people may find a little unusual, remember I said, going back to quirky, I don't sit and plan what I'm going to write. I let the voice of the character kind of lead me on a journey. So if you were to stop me midway through and say, hey, what's going to happen next? Or how's the story going to end? I don't know. I'm just as much, you know, going along with it to figure out what will happen as the reader is. It's only after I do the first draft, then I say, oh, this is what happened. And then, you know, of course you edit, but I'm, I'm not one of those planner writers. I'm one that I really have to feel the character, have to hear the character. And I just write what, what I feel the character is saying. And sometimes I want to take a story in a certain direction and character would say, no, that's not what I do. No, that's not, that doesn't ring true. Um, so my brother teases me that I hear voices in my head, but I just go with what I hear and I just flow with that. I believe in a higher power and I definitely know that my inspiration comes outside of myself. And, you know, while this novel is about a mother's love for her son, it also pulls together different voices. So, I mean, you get a feel of Jamaica's ghetto, dance hall, the criminal underworld, and even corruption in terms of politics. So why did you touch on all of these different topics? Well, I touched on it because that's how complicated Jamaica is, you know. It's a society of incredible wealth and privilege for some people and incredible poverty for others. And then, of course, the middle class. And, you know, Jamaica has traditionally had a very uh, fraught and fractured but tight relationship between politics and violence, you know. Um, the, The political parties in the 80s had gunmen or gangs aligned to them that would war against each other and would control communities called garrison communities, some of which are still existing today, where everybody knows in that community, you vote for this party, you dare not vote for the other party. And you may have a member of parliament, but the person on the ground who runs things is the Beradon, who is involved whether in drugs, God smuggling, and you don't cross that Beradon. So I wanted to write about that because that is a feature of Jamaican society. As much as we have the lovely beaches and the hotels and all of that, the beauty and the ugliness together make Jamaica the unique place that it is. Yeah, I mean, and that's what makes, you know, these stories authentic is that you're pulling in the good, the bad, the ugly. What part of the novel did you have the hardest time writing? Pieces with Apollo. Because Apollo is still trying to find himself. Who is he as a man? Who is he as a person? His own identity. You know, he would speak a certain way, trying to sound like African-American rappers or athletes. You know, the whole Ebonics thing. And then in some context, he's, he's all perfect English. And he's, in a sense, a performer, depending on who he's speaking with. And has a lot of blind spots about himself. So it was harder to write him as a character because I don't 
think that he knows himself as a person. And so as a writer, trying to pin that down was a little bit difficult. So he was definitely the hardest one to write. And Shama, what character did you relate to the most and why? It's hard to say. That's a good question, Curtis, but I, I don't think I related to anyone more than the other because it's like saying, in a way, which child is your favorite child? Um, I think all of those characters, in some way, uh, there's something I empathize with them about, but it's hard to pick one. It's hard to pick one. I can say I had a complicated relationship with British, who is the error in the story, because he's utterly horrible. But also, it's like you just can't take your eyes off him as a character. So he's done horrible things, but he's also a very compelling character. So I think he probably was the most fun to write. Yeah, and as I listened to your journey, it was definitely one of learning and growth. What did you learn when writing this novel? That I could write a novel, full stop. So (laughs) um, I'm a short story writer, have always been. The challenge of a novel is something I'd never embarked on before. So didn't know I was capable of doing it. Uh, it kind of takes me back to when I did my PhD. It's like, you know, you don't know that you can do a PhD until you do a PhD. There's a reason I think 50% of people who start a PhD program um, drop out. You know, they don't finish it. It's, it's sort of like you just have to keep pushing until it's at the end. You know, um, and and same with a novel. You keep pushing. You know, my my thesis supervisor used to say, you don't finish a thesis, you just stop writing. Um, And same with a novel. There's always refinement that you could do because even looking back on it now, there may be things I would have done differently. Um, But I stand by that book. I stand by those choices. I stand by the characters and things that I wanted to do in it. So what I learned is trust yourself. You know, you're capable of doing it. And it's important to have fun while writing. I know that people may, a lot of writers listening, you know, they take the job seriously as a writer and you should. But I also believe that if you're not enjoying it, if you're not finding pleasure in the journey, then it's, it's, you have to really examine that. Because readers would tell me they're reading the book and there are things that make them laugh out loud. You know, something that the character would say that's so hilarious. And when I'm writing it, it makes me laugh too because I am writing what I feel the characters are saying. And I need to find pleasure in the endeavor. I need to find fun in it. I need to experiment with different styles or different ways of doing things. In this book, I have multiple voices. You know, there are lots of heads that the readers go into, including a second person voice. So there's even a chapter with a you. So stuff like that. I love to play and I love that my agent and publisher allow me to do weird and quirky things and playful things in my writing. Shama, what does literary success look like to you? It looks like for me, putting out a book I'm proud of, putting out a book that grips people. You know, I have some persons who have read it, including my mom and let me just say, my mom is not a fan of my short stories. Like, I'm not her favorite writer, you know? Because she'll read a short story and she's like, Sharma, I don't get this. What do you mean? Including some prize-winning story. She's like, I don't understand. But when I gave her this novel and she started to read it, she was so hooked that she missed the news. And my, my mother watches news every evening at 7 o'clock. Uh, for her to be reading a book that she's like, oh, I'm missing the news for this. Or, 
you know, the cable is out and my mom is reading till nine in the night. She's not that kind of reader. She's not that kind of person. And she'd said to me, Sham, I'm not reading this because you're my child. I'm reading this because I want to know what happens with these characters. I need to find out. And and I think for me, success is when a reader feels that way, that man, I need to get to the end of this. I need to know what happens with these characters. I, I feel challenged by something that's happening here. I, you know, it causes me to look into myself for some introspection. I want for me, somebody reads a book and they come away changed. That's what success looks like for me. Complete this sentence. I feel unstoppable when I'm creating powerful stories. And that's powerful in itself. Sharma, thanks for taking the time to share your story with us. It was such a pleasure having you. Thank you, Curlis. This is such a wonderful opportunity and I'm so grateful for you to have me on. Um, it was my absolute pleasure. Where can our guests connect with you? Well, I'm at Twitter at I am Sharma Taylor. So definitely follow me on Twitter. Send me a message. Let's talk. Um, you can find the books in hopefully your local bookstore. But if not, contact them and ask them to order it. You can buy it at Amazon UK online. Excellent. To our Unstoppable Yes You Tribe, thanks for your continued support. Don't forget to check out more stories about Caribbean impact makers, rising stars, and trailblazers at unstoppableyesyou.com.